Welcome to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan, and today we are talking about eating disorders. Eating disorders affect 9% of the population worldwide. Second to opioid use disorder, eating disorders are the second most deadly psychiatric illness and the number one cause of death in girls and women between the ages of 15 to 24. More than 25% of people with eating disorders attempt suicide. Eating disorders are persistent, severe, and disabling. Our guest today has devoted the past 30 years to research related to treatment of eating disorders and providing hands-on care and support to patients and their families. Dr. Mary Tantillo is a professor of clinical nursing at the University of Rochester School of Nursing and a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Rochester School of Medicine. She has conducted research to evaluate an innovative relational motivational approach to understanding and treating adults with anorexia nervosa through the use of multifamily therapy group. Dr. Tantillo directs the Western New York Comprehensive Care Center for Eating Disorders, one of three comprehensive care centers in New York State, which works to better coordinate care and services for patients and families and improve outcomes. She is the founder and former CEO and president of a nonprofit eating disorders partial hospitalization program for adults and adolescents called The Healing Connection. She is a fellow and past board member of the Academy for Eating Disorders. In 2021, just this year, Dr. Tentillo released a treatment manual from Rutledge called Multifamily Therapy Group for Young Adults with Anorexia Nervosa, Reconnecting for Recovery. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Trish, for having me on. I feel honored to spend the time with you and everybody else. My pleasure. Uh, Mary, uh, how long have you had it in your mind to write a book? Oh my gosh, Trish. (laughs) Um, Well, I would say at least from the beginning of multifamily group work, which really kind of spans the last 20 years, but especially the last 10 years, because the families have taught me and my colleagues so much. I wanted wanted to put it into writing so that people could see how theory and research and listening to families lived experience and patients lived experience could come together in kind of a different, more relational way. So I would say at least the last 10 years for sure, but it took me two, the last two and a half years to actually do it. I don't, I think you're amazing. I remember meeting you for the first time in uh, 2005 and we went for coffee in Rochester, New York, and you told me you had a dream to create a partial hospital program for uh, young adolescents and adults with eating disorders. And you were busy writing grants. And I remember, Mary, the emails I would get from you would be timed at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. I know, <laughs> Did, we, run, we run out of time during the day, Trish. <laughs> well, I think it's because anybody working with uh, eating disorders or uh, with me with uh, alcohol and drug problems, 
Boy, uh, such desperation, such urgency, such suffering, right, of our patient panel? Right. And those families are on my shoulder at two in the morning, right? Right, right. It, exactly. I'm, I was so impressed that five years after I met you, you did open the doors of the Healing Connection in Rochester, the Partial Hospital Program nonprofit. And can you tell us a little bit about the Healing Connection, Mary? Um, the Healing Connection. Um, birthing that was like having a child, right? And you always Oof. love it and you take care of it and you get people along with you. I have many of them still taking care of the agency. Um, it really, the reason that I developed that, there's many reasons, obviously my love of patients and families, but it's very hard in hospital systems the way they're set up, financially, administratively, um, to, to take care of patients with eating disorders and their families and the way that you feel you need to and in an evidence-based way and with the staffing that it really requires. And so having tried to do that in a number of hospital systems, I mean, everybody gave it the best shot they had. I thought, you know what, if we're all gonna be stressed about care, I'd rather build it the way we all think it should be built and, and, re and reach out to patients and families. And we're able to incorporate their lived experience into how we built, we built it over time. Um, and you know, Trish, you're very sweet for saying that I'm amazing or whatever the word was, but honestly, I sit on the shoulders of so many wonderful people um, colleagues, patients, families who helped helped me with the planning. Um, Monroe County, where we where I know you used to live, is amazing in terms of mental health resources and the supports that are available to help you do that. And the Office of Mental Health was also a huge supporter um, in the program development. And we're and we're actually finishing the continuum now. To, to, we're going to build an adolescent residential. That's our, our current project. Because we built out the partial and then we built out intensive outpatient and we added outpatient clinic. And now, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but the building moved from Fairport to University Avenue in the city. And it, we got so big, we took the whole outpatient area and now we have them on Blossom Road and a separate satellite. So I feel really good about the fact that we can take care of so many families and patients. I remember the staff that you hired. Boy, you handpicked such a group of caring, warm, skilled individuals. And this partial hospital program for the listening audience, you had uh, a dietitian. You had the people come, is it six days a week for meals? I think they ate. Yeah, five days a week for partial, seven hours a day. Wow. DBT groups, uh, individual therapy, family therapy, your multifamily therapy groups, dance, movement, it, it encompassed everything in a beautiful sacred space. Yeah, we've been lucky with the spaces we've had. Families have, and patients have felt very safe and welcomed. It's very important when you're being vulnerable with each other to feel safe and welcomed. Mm -hmm. So the residential treatment uh, program that you're building is going to be, would that be a four-week model or a six-week model or it depends um, on the individual? It probably depends on the individual, but a lot of, I mean, it depends. Are you talking as an insurer? Are you talking as a, at least four weeks, at least four to six weeks, probably. Some patients will need more than that, depending on what they're experiencing. But I would say that would be probably the minimal amount of time. How wonderful. And Mary, where does your passion for eating disorders come from? You're, you're a tireless crusader. And I mean, seriously, and such a wonderful advocate. Where did you get interested in treating eating disorders? How did that come to fruition? The patients always ask me this question. So I always say I didn't have an eating disorder, 
But I do understand anxiety, Trish. Um, I've had that, went to nursing school and had to get through nursing school with anxiety. But besides that, when I first trained as a nurse, when I was way back in the day, I was fortunate enough to be placed on the fourth floor, which is an inpatient unit at Strong Memorial Hospital. And it just so happened by luck of draw that that was a psych unit that was a behavioral therapy unit for um, patients and families, not only of eating disorders for pain, but all the eating disorder folks came to that unit. And so I was fortunate to brought, you know, meet these families. And I, I don't know how else to describe it, except for I fell in love with them and I, the patients, the families. I mean, I really felt very connected to what they were experiencing. And, and I, I remember telling um, uh, the medical director, who is now my husband, <laughs> I remember saying to him, I remember saying to him, I know everyone's working really hard to take care of these patients and families. And at the same time, it just seems like we're not doing either enough or the right thing. And so listening to families and patients over time is what brought me to the multifamily model and the model that we use um, at the Healing Connection, in addition to being trained at the Gene Baker Miller Training Institute, um, which is very relationally, culturally oriented. But in terms of your question, I kind of fell in love with folks and I, anxiety doesn't, I can be in the room with folks who are highly anxious. In fact, it, it, it is, it, it pulls on me to be more, more connected with people to help them use the anxiety in a way that will help them not hurt them because, you know, anxiety is telling us something's not right. Mm-hmm. But we can we can learn from it. And underneath eating disorders can be a ton of anxiety, as well as depression and other difficulties. But I would say perfectionism and anxiety run high. Once you peel back eating disorder behaviors, people are very hard on themselves. Um, so I, I, I just I took to those families and patients and can feel I want to help their plight. Now, what can you tell us, uh, Mary, about anorexia nervosa? So what do you what do you want to know? My gosh, I I guess I mean, uh, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? How do they present? Uh, anything that you think would be compelling clinically for us to know about anorexia? I mean, I wish I, I my my brother would be to have, to be able to turn to a person right now in recovery and say answer that question. But I can tell you some of what they've said to me and what you'll probably see. When you go to the literature, if you were to read, and we've because we've done focus group studies too, um, patients will say that. Um, well, looking back in hindsight, patients will say that things did not make good sense to them. I have patients telling me that there's whole whole parts of growing up that they don't even they don't have a good memory for uh-huh. um, because your ability to process information, both cog- I mean cognitively. From your even from your internal organs um, affectively is really not what it would be if you were well and so depending on i mean the, a lot of times people will, will in time understand that they tend to be very focused on detail they, their thoughts are kind of rigid it's very hard for them to move back and forth between the bigger picture and the details and that's not always a bad thing because if you're going to be an architect Right. right or an accountant, you want you want detail um, attentiveness. But when you're having trouble being able to move back and forth and to see the big picture interpersonally, that can get you into a lot of trouble. Right, right. Um, very so, very black and white. Very yes, obsessive. Very all or nothing. Worried. Perfectionistic. Um, and patients will always tell you that they're very hard on themselves, and they really, when you're very sick, you really believe that 
you're not worth anything. There's a lot of self-loathing that can happen, not only about people's body shape and weight and size and the food they're eating, but about themselves at the core of who they are, which is painful to hear. And they believe this initially and the illness wants them to keep believing that because then it offers itself up as a solution to try to get rid of that feeling and to feel a sense of mastery or control or to be able to regulate painful emotion. But um, those are probably the different kinds of things they would say, and they would probably say their perfectionism was at an all-time high, that it was hard to really sit with intense emotion. It's very scary when you have anorexia. You want to run as far away from that as possible. Um, it's hard to have a, an accurate sense of hunger or fullness or what emotion you are having. People might have trouble like naming and expressing emotion. Um, they, I kind of, I guess I would the um, analogy or the metaphor I would use is think about a turtle, right? You like things deliberate, slow, gradual. You're not a novelty lover, right? Right. Now, having said that, I'm really kind of portraying restrictive anorexia nervosa. Yes. Someone who's got more binging and purging added into that is probably wired a little bit different and is maybe a little bit more impulsive. But with restrictive anorexia nervosa, you're more introverted, harm avoidant, um, and all, and the other things I talked about are probably common across both of those types. Does that help? That's super helpful. It's um, interesting because I think it would be news to a lot of people that someone with anorexia who's super, super thin might hate themselves on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, this, and yes, absolutely. And you wouldn't know that looking at when I look, when I walk into the, um, the, the partial, for example, every day, yeah. I see these beautiful, and I'm not talking about just physically, beautiful inside and out people, talented people who feel that way about themselves. And they they say, you know, I, Mary, I compare myself to others and I always come up short. And you know, that is so erosive on not just, I mean, to the point of our souls, it really, it really um, does us in over time if we can't switch that up. And the and eating disorder is not any help because it's not letting the patient get to the place emotionally or psychologically where they need to kind of be able to do that work because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's causing starvation, it's causing binging or purging and exhaustion. So it's a whole other layer that creates this connection that you have to get through first by, re, you know, nutritional rehabilitation, you know, interrupting symptoms so you can get to what you and I are talking about right now, which is to kind of be able to go upstream to target some of those things like perfectionism or fears of living and failing at things and being hard on ourselves. And are there risk factors for anorexia nervosa? Um, um, definitely, we need to do more. We need to do more more research on that. I wouldn't say we have that all wrapped up, but um, one definite one that's a very robust, if not the most robust, is a sense of body dissatisfaction, especially weight concern, is a very uh-huh. robust predictor of body image disturbance, eating disorders. Perfectionism also is a marker. Um, you know, if you've had anxiety, does you know can increase the risk. Um, but those things are often the context from which the illness is growing. And of course, those things can help maintain illness too, right? Right. I wonder where the body distortion comes from in a child. Do you think it's uh, brain wired? I, there's definitely neurobiological challenges going on. If you read the models um, that have to do with what creates anorexia, so you've got neurobiology, you've got psychology, and you've got environmental stress all coming together to create a, a recipe for disaster, so to speak. Um, so they run, these illnesses run in families. 
So there's a genetic 50 to 80% of why someone goes on to an eating disorder has to do with genes, the rest of the environment and how they interact. Um, so um, if, if we think about neurobiology, I'm just trying to think of some examples for you. So, and what's hard, Trish, is that we don't have enough longitudinal research, right? It would be great yeah. to start with kids and then be able to follow them, but we tend not to have the money that's required to do that. And also eating disorder, anorexia is much less common than depression, right? So you need large numbers. It's hard, it's hard to do the research that's required, but um, if, if you went all the way back, uh, and if you went all the way back, we'd have more data, but what happens is we take patients where they're at, we get them better, and then we look at what they were before and after, right? So if you look at neuro, neurochemistry, for example, we know that there's um, difficulties with the serotonin system, with the dopamine system. So with serotonin, um, there's like, they call it reuptake. So if you put your hands in front of you and your left hand is your presynaptic nerve cell and your right hand is your postsynaptic and the okay. middle is a cleft, yep. serotonin is supposed to float, you know, from one side of the nerve to the other, to other cell. And that's not happening, for example, with anorexia nervosa, that serotonin is getting taken back up into that, that presynaptic cell. Ah. And so transmission of, of information is not happening smoothly in that situation. And in that situation, there's a ton of anxiety that goes along with that reuptake. So things like, and I know you know this, things like Prozac will stop that reuptake so serotonin can float across easily and get to the other side. And then, and then, pro, and then information processing can happen more smoothly. Also, there's trouble with the dopamine system. And again, we're doing lots of work on this, but it looks like folks with anorexia nervosa are actually wired in a way that the way dopamine works is it's reinforcing not eating instead oh, of eating. That's backwards. So, oh, it's, it's, it's reverse. And I know that's hard to really huh. wrap our heads around, but they've yeah. done research to look at that. And people with anorexia have a ton of anxiety just anticipating eating, right? Even probably more than what it feels like while they're doing something hard. The anticipation is, is so overwhelming. Um, they're not good. Like I said, they don't like novelty. They, they don't like expecting something and then something not happening or expecting or, or not expecting something and something happening. That's that they, they don't do well with that. And it, as it turns out, the way the dopamine system is, is uh, operates with folks, it seems like it's, like I said, reverse, reverse functioning. So what, and, and then you can, it sets off with someone who's at risk for anorexia nervosa genetically and the environment and the genes come together. If you're at risk, and you start to diet or there's a negative energy balance situation. Cindy Bulick's talked about this most recently. That is like not good for someone who's vulnerable. It'd be like a kid who's in a family of addiction, right. vulnerable, going out and coking. It's the last thing you want that kid to do, right? Because exactly. their brain's going to respond to the dopamine differently. Mm -hmm. And that's it's true. What The way that the body neurobiologically and physiologically and hormonally responds to dieting or food restriction is going to be different in someone who's vulnerable and can cause a cascade of things to happen and end up ending up in, in anorexia nervosa. Now, I've heard you say in the book, you said uh, eating disorders are a disease of disconnection. Right. They disconnect the patient from himself or herself, and they yep. disconnect us uh, members of the family from each other. Can yep. you say something a little bit more about that? Give some examples of a state of disconnection uh, between the family members and maybe inside the person with anorexia. 
Oh, that's a good question. So let's go back to some of the examples I gave you before about having trouble reading our internal bodily states and our emotions, um, having kind of cognitive rigid, you know, rigid thoughts. Those are disconnections happening on the inside, right? And I'll give you another example, the insula, which takes in external sensory information and is supposed to integrate that with internal information about our bodily states or our okay. emotions. Yeah. When that's not happening and it's not happening, it looks like with folks with anorexia nervosa, um, even when they get well, the ins- there seems to be a disconnection in how how that processing is happening. So that if all those kinds of things are happening internally, there's disconnections in the insula, there's disconnections neurochemically. I gave you two examples of serotonin and dopamine. Those disconnections or dysfunctions internally kind of interplay. And remember there's other other parts of our wiring um, and and psychology that has to do with things like um, avoiding intense emotion, conflict avoidance, silencing ourselves, minimizing our feelings or needs, those kinds of disconnects from what's genuine and what we really need, along with the neurobiological ones, start interacting. So oh. you take all of that as a person struggling with anorexia and you're talking to your family member, right? And right. You ha- you're very focused on detail. You can't see the big picture. Yep. Something goes wrong in, in communication or, or maybe it got perceived that way because you're dealing with all this and you're starved, which has its own sequelae, right? Yep. To keep all this going. Yeah. And the family member on the other side of the communication exchange is very distressed themselves because these illnesses burden the patient for sure, but they burden loved, uh, loved ones who are caring for patients. So you have your own psychological distress, your own caregiving burden, um, and, and your own fatigue. So you can see how this ends up in an interpersonal disconnection, not because people don't love each other or care about each other, yes. but there's so much, there's so much disconnection going on internally with the patient that's interplaying. And now is, is interacting with a loved one who has their own disconnections going on, fatigue, not being able to take care of themselves because of distress. And that just comes together. And so then you've got a couple of different kinds of disconnection we talk about in the book. The two main kinds, like if you had two circles out in front of you, we, we do this in multifamily group, we have circles. So we've got, okay. um, we've got one Venn diagram, one diagram that's got two separate circles, an I and a U. Okay. So those interpersonal disconnections can end up with people being totally far apart, not communicating, tension, anger, arguing, arguing, right? Eating sort of loves this, does anything it can to create this. Then we've got another poster where the circles are right on top of each other. Uh, and meshed. Yes, exactly. And it looks like a connection, right? But it's a super mm. connection. And people are probably depending on each other in ways that aren't healthy. So not interdependence, which is healthy. Yes. But I won't say codependence, but you you understand what I'm saying, right? Right. I don't know where you begin and I leave off. Exactly. And then mm. people in that situation can't not be authentic with with each other and maybe not even with themselves because they're afraid if they are authentic and they state a different thought, a different feeling, a different need, they'll lose the last shred of connection they have with their loved one. And that is very scary. And the eating disorder loves that and hopes for that because you can see in that situation, that ends up with tons of disconnection. People can't be real with themselves or with each other. So really what we want is a Venn diagram, right? Which has the we in the middle, Yes. I and the you, and we want to respect difference. And in a mutual, in a mutual relationship, which is based on mutual empathy and mutual empowerment of one another and the and the connection, 
people not only are connected and are supportive of each other when things are going well or, or they have a similarity on, on issues, but where the rubber hits the road with a truly mutual relationship is when things go awry and people have different thoughts about things, different feelings, different needs, perspectives, they can use those to enhance the relationship, not let the eating disorder take the differences and, and damage the relationship. Does that, that make sense? Well, I like the concept. You talk about the eating disorder as uh, something outside of the, the patient. Yes, I externalize it. Right. It's not the patient splitting the family up. It's the disease. It's the eating disorder that wants right. to separate the team, split the team. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's that splitting or that dis, dis, disconnection happens on in, in parallel process ways on many levels. It's happening inside the patient to keep the patient away from what's really going on psychologically or physically. Um, and then the eating disorder is doing it in the family. It's not wanting the patient and family to connect in a mutual way and to, to be able to be real with each other and get to the bottom of things. And then of course, it's creating disconnections with other families and, and like creating entropy and, and or negative energy because it doesn't want families getting support from other families or other families will try to support the family, but they don't know what to say. So they say things like, well, why can't you get her to eat? Or why can't you stop him from throwing up? And trust me, I have a lot of smart families. If that's all it took, you and I wouldn't even be having this discussion today. Totally. And, then, and then of course, the eating disorder tries to split the patient and family from the treatment team by right. having people argue about the treatment plan and get, you know, get stuck on things. Um, and then it tries to split the treatment team. Like you and I know the eating disorder tries to descend on the treatment team and people are pointing fingers at each other and saying, here's a good nurse, a bad nurse. All that black and white thinking, it yes. tries to really leverage on all those levels because it wants the patient all to itself. That's the goal. So you're painting the picture of the person with anorexia nervosa as if, if I have it and I'm sad or I'm mad, I might not even recognize yes. that I'm sad or mad. Yes. I, yes. I didn't know that. That's very yes. good information. It gives me a lot of um, understanding for that person. So they're not staring at me like a deer in the headlights uh, because they're whole, withholding. They might not actually know what they feel. And if they're conflict avoidant, yes. this is scaring the heck out of them. Oh my God. I'm so glad you're saying it this way. And, they, and they're afraid of change. And yes. the team is wanting them to gain weight. And the parents is, are wanting to, them to gain weight and enter treatment, which is, that's huge uh, to even to leave my house. Now we're going to have yes. to take a short break, but you're really helping me understand. And I think our audience as well, that uh, the person with an eating disorder lives in anxiety, fear of change, fear of confrontation, and the eating disorder wants to perpetuate that person's isolation yes. and rituals and black and white thinking. And you've got a desperate family surrounding the patient who yes. wants to do the right thing, but there's just the eating disorder is working really hard to keep that patient isolated and split the team, the treatment team and the family with the patient. So this is great. When we come back, Mary Tantilla will be discussing the goals of the multifamily treatment groups, what happens in the multifamily uh, therapy groups. Um, and then I want to ask a little bit about um, uh, where to access treatment. So you won't want to miss this. And uh, we'll be right back um, with Mary Tantillo. Thank you so much. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Treatment of Opioid Use Disorder is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This comprehensive video covers how to talk to patients about three FDA-approved treatment options, the research behind each medication, and how to help patients choose the right medication for them. You'll learn everything you ever wanted to know about these treatment options to be able to treat patients in your office with ease. This video simplifies the prescribing of buprenorphine and includes buprenorphine home induction instructions for patients and pamphlets for patients and their families. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com for more information. Benzodiazepines, the epidemic we aren't talking about, is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This very comprehensive video describes the dangers of taking benzodiazepines and Z-drugs long-term and teaches how to de-prescribe them safely and effectively. We outline how to talk to your patients before, during, and after a long, slow Valium taper, how to build your patient a village of support, and offer a de-prescribing toolkit. Find out more about this package and what it includes. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. If you or someone you love struggles with a substance use disorder or prescription drug dependence and would like information about resources that can help, please contact one of the following organizations. The American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, or the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. Now, back to recovery, the hero's journey. Hi, everyone. We're back to Recovery the Hero's Journey with Dr. Mary Tantillo, eating disorders expert. And Mary's just been describing anorexia nervosa and also uh, been talking about the disconnections that happen within the patient and within the patient's family and how the eating disorder tries to split the team uh, and split the family. And Mary, I don't do family therapy for a reason. Uh, every time I have a family in my office, I want to I scream and run from the room. And you, you put in your multifamily therapy groups, how many families and how many patients in one room together? Um, depending on the setting that you're in, uh, an outpatient group would be more like five to seven families, but in partial, we've had up to 10 families. Yikes. So I admire that in you. And I'm going to ask, what's the advantage of putting patients and families like five to seven to 10 families and patients in the same room? <laughs> so there's so many. I love families. First oh, of yeah. all, psychiatry discovered this late, but guess what our best resource is for recovery? Families. connection right and families. families because they know what's going on outside of your office right it's yeah. it's it, it's kind of naive and and actually somewhat dangerous to think that what's going on in your office is the full picture right so we discovered that families are our best resource and the very cool thing about multifamily is that it's like a neighborhood so think about how you can multiply exponentially the coping strategies the strengths the talents the gifts um, the resources emotionally that you can leverage with all those families in the room at the uh, same time. And, be, and, and remember, just think back when you were younger, I don't know if it's just me, but 
you know, when your parents told you something or even your partner told you something that you didn't, you didn't want to hear and the eating disorder definitely didn't want you to hear because it wants you to be defensive or, or, or sometimes you just don't know you're sick. You have anosognosia. You really don't right. think anything's wrong. Yeah. Um, think about what it could be like to sit with others who have your experience, other patients and other family members, right? And how powerful uh -huh. that is. You've developed a community of healing. And so if you don't want to hear what your own parents have to say, there's cross-parenting that can happen in multifamily. Someone else across the way could say, you know, Jimmy, what I think your dad is trying to say is, and suddenly the uh -huh. light goes on, the sunshine comes <laughs> It's like, And then, of course, the parents are like, I've been saying this for the last. <laughs> it doesn't matter, though, because this is how you grow kids anyway. But the point is yeah. you can use that neighborhood community leveraging in a way that can create healing that is not going to happen in the same way without those families around you. Oh, I love that. And if I can't see something in myself, yes. I might see it in a patient across the room. Yes, because remember, like the way you described anorexia before we went off, before the break, imagine not thinking anything is wrong and you're, and you're in the forest and you have your little compass and yep. your compass is telling you you're going north. Yeah. Right. And people from like a Woody Allen movie, they're running in from either side going, you're going south. And you're like looking at them like, what are you talking about? So right. not only is it disconcerting, it's disturbing. And then you might get angry. Then you might get scared when you're with a group of people who can gently and um, lovingly offer up a different way to think about this. Yes. You might be more willing to listen. Right. And consider Oh, I love that. And maybe if uh, you're a patient and I'm a patient and I hear your story and it's yes. similar to mine yes. and I feel a lot of compassion for you, maybe it'll generate some compassion in me. Yeah, that, absolutely. It's patients helping patients, families helping family members, helping family members, family members helping patients, patients saying to family members, like if a mom or a dad or a partner is really having a tough time, a patient could say, this is what I think your son is saying. This is what I think your daughter is. You can reach into the group in a way you can't. Oh, how helpful. Do you know what I'm saying? So you yes. get exponential changes that can happen. And as a mother, it might decrease my own shame. I mean, because yes. if I've been fighting with my child with anorexia for a year and I feel like the bad object, yes. then I go into a treatment group and I see, oh, well, uh, other people in this group hate their mothers too. I'm not the only one. I'm not alone. It might well, be the disease. It, exactly. It takes the shame and blame out of it. People will say, parents and Patients will say the universality, the, the commonality that you, you end up feeling with everybody in the room is one of the most important the healing factors that the, the families will talk about. Um, and they really love that and the validation and not having to explain yourself to someone who has no idea what they, you know what I mean? It's such a comfort. Like you said, it takes the anger, shame, blame, because Trish, we don't have time for that. We don't have no. time for shame and blame. Every no. moment spent on shame and blame is one moment more towards the eating disorder and away from the creative work that we need to be doing to move ahead together in recovery. We're more powerful together than apart, right? Yes. I mean, that a relationship has more power than the person alone with an eating disorder. Absolutely. And that is your, your title of the book, Recovery for Connection, right? Yep, Reconnecting for Recovery. Yep. There you go. And, and so... It's, it's trying to, in that group, what we're trying to do is not only form a community of healing, you know, in, the, in a more holistic sense, but we're trying to teach people in the group how, um, how anorexia nervosa is a disease of disconnection, 
how it promotes disconnections, what those look like so that you can tell when those are happening. Um, we also wanna talk about how disconnections can affect the perpetuation of AN symptoms. It's like a, ma a maintenance cycle. We want people to understand that healing comes from experiencing mutuality, that kind of back and forth flow of thoughts, feelings and activity. We help them understand what that looks like, like mutual empathy, mutual empowerment, um, mutual understanding. And we teach them emotional and relational skills for how to make that mutuality happen. So, and we're also incorporating motivational interviewing principles and the stages of change that patients and families go through and promoting a sense of hopefulness so that at the end, people are not isolated in the way the illness wants them to be because like 50% of our survivorship has to do with being connected. Being disconnected and isolated from others is like smoking almost a full pack of cigarettes a day. When you give up isolation, you've given up almost a full pack of cigarettes a day. That is like- I, really I love important. that analogy. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. Can you give me a vignette of something hopeful that might happen in your multifamily therapy group or a disconnect that happens that maybe their rupture gets repaired? Yeah, or absolutely. And I can do it because the, the multifamily, this particular book is targeting young adults. Um, I can, it's, a good, it's good to get a little vignette so you can look at a young adult challenge, which is going to college, either mm -hmm. first time out or returning after you've been sick. Right. It's, a, it's a source of contention because, of course, as a young adult, you, you know, those people who want to go to college, they want to feel like they have autonomy. They want to feel like they can be independent. Um, they want to sometimes go far away from home. I, we, can, we all can understand people kind of wanting to spread their wings. At the same time, anorexia is going to do everything it can to get in the way. So it's one of the big things that parents, for example, and young adults have to balance is how much autonomy do I give my kid? How far away from me do I let them go? You know, and when, when, and, and, and then when do I know I need to pull them closer to me and provide more structure if they're getting into trouble? So a vignette would be the going back to college. And this, this has happened in a group a lot of times um, where a patient We'll be talking about, um, in one of the sessions, we start talking about points of tension or disconnections. And with this particular group model, we would have already talked about some of these in a preview fashion during the assessment um, phases, which is like session one and two. But then we have the whole group talking about points of tension, disconnection, so they can compare. Yep. And almost inevitably, there's somebody in the group who is like really upset because they feel like their parents aren't, are, are being too hard, hard on them or aren't being clear enough about what needs to happen and what that needs to look like before they go back. And there can be real, um, there can be real frustration about this. And so having the whole group with other young adults and other parents as a therapist in that group and trying to first name the disconnection, that's the most important part. You want the, the, the student or the patient to name it. So we all have to name it first, right? And then we have to talk about how we're feeling about it and the sense we're making of it. What does it mean that this is a point of tension, right? Oh, cool. So and how do you, how do you name a feeling like? So when, let's just say that, let's just say that um, the, the, the patient is having a tough time naming what they're feeling about this whole college thing. Um, there's a lot, there's, there's choice points. I can, we can do this in, in a number of different ways. I, I wouldn't call the group in right away. I would first want to try to empower the patient to name that him or herself. 
So if they couldn't come up with it, I would say, okay, well, let's pass the feeling list down to um, Susan. Oh, that's wonderful. Let's, let's look at the feeling list for a minute because you're trying to teach internal connection too, not oh, only that's amazing. So if they're still having a tough time, I might say to another young adult, you guys, I need your help. What do you think Susan's feeling knowing what we know so far? And they'll, they'll say different feelings and then we'll go back to her and we'll say, okay, based on all these, are any of these ones that you can identify with or not? Right. And also we could say, okay, let's look at what's going on inside of your body. Let's try to connect up the feeling with your bodily sensations. Cause they oh, just cool. don't know. Like, oh, do you have yeah. a tightening in your chest? Do you, are your limbs feeling tense? Do you have like a headache right now? Like, and what do those biological signs go with? Oh, you're, oh, I see you're clenching your fist or ah. your jaw. Right. What let's put that. Let's, and, and see, like you said before, Trish, people don't think in young adults, you have to do that. No, People this are is miss- wonderful news. They're, they're missing the point that they really just don't know sometimes. They've and been numb for such yes. a long time. And part and, of this is lack of food and part of it is the neurobiology. And part of it is being terrified of intense emotion. So ah, even when you refeed okay. people, they're actually feeling more scared because they still have to learn ways to name and regulate emotion, which is also what you're trying to help them do. So you can call in the group to help. Yeah. In that situation, I always want the young adults to feel empowered. So I try to start with them first. Right. Then yeah. I widen. Now, the other the other choice you have is you can use yourself. Like I might, because this is part of mutuality, you want to sure. model how to do it. So I might say, I might use therapist self-disclosure and say, you know, I was watching you and your dad talk. And when you were talking, I was feeling really sad and frustrated for both of you. I'm not sure that's how you felt. Can you share, does, is that the same or, and I always say, is that the same or different? I create the pathway so either one of those answers could be given back to me because they don't want to rock the boat. So cool. I give them the option of it might be different. Yeah. And so then they take my feeling in, oh, Mary's feeling sad and frustrated. And now they have to practice self-empathy, which is, okay. am, I feeling so, am I feeling that way or am I feeling something different? So they've practiced empathy with me, picking up on yep. my feelings, going back in themselves, self-empathy, and then they bring it back out in the interpersonal field. That's mutuality. So, you're at, so you can do that as well, but I try to have the patient do it or the group do it. I want them to feel like this is, they're accomplishing this, right? They feel successful. I'll go in and do it if I think it's important or they need a little help. Yeah. I think it might be extra powerful, but I, is this answering your question? Well, it's super super helpful and super powerful and it's very elementary isn't it i mean this this is it not seems... about it's not about food well I mean, right, right patients will tell you that in the end of course yeah. we need to have food to get the best benefit of therapy we need right. to stop the malnourishment because there's a whole cascade of things that keeps keep going who's going to want to feel an intense who can feel an intense emotion or who can you can't accurately perceive anything when you're, you're when you're numb from starvation anyway we've right. got to correct all that but once you've corrected it, now you've got a more scared patient. You know, it's it's you're like a walking the walking wounded. You're like terrified. You've got to learn all these skills now to regulate yourself or to feel a sense of control in a different way. So you're not in a free fall all day, right? Or a sense of mastery, so you feel good about yourself. Uh, how supportive and how safe. And I guess do parents come into the multifamily therapy group and say, uh, you know, Paul isn't eating everything that he's supposed to be eating. Uh, He's restricting and we're worried about that and we're so frustrated and he's losing weight. Or do they save that for the individual sessions? Um, 
It could, it could happen. We, the thing about this particular multifamily group, when we did the focus groups and we asked outpatient alumni of these groups for several years, what do you think would be the most helpful? They, families and patients said, we like to talk less about food because we're always talking about it. We'd like to talk about communication and collaboration. And we'd like to talk about the food with our dietitian, with our primary care person, with our individual therapist or our single family therapist. But we'd like to use this community to talk about emotions and connection. And it's not that we're ignoring it because this issue does come up. And when it comes up, we want to name it. We don't want to avoid it. The eating disorder wants you to avoid it. So Mm -hmm. I would probably turn to everybody and say, this is really hard. And I'm sure you're not the only family. Other people, other families in the room, is anybody else experiencing this? Let's talk a little bit about what that looks like. Then again, what does it mean? Yeah. What are the feelings? And then we'll talk about solutions. We don't talk about solutions until we get through the naming of it, the feelings of it, the meanings connected to it. Because by then we all know what we need to do really. And it's not just about the food. It's how people are viewing what's happening and making sense of it. And people have a lot of intense emotion. Their parents are feeling or partners are feeling, siblings are feeling scared or frustrated. So Mm -hmm. is the patient. I mean, and so what you've got to do is kind of dampen all of that intense emotion down more Mm -hmm. so people can listen to each other because the the illness is a noise in the head of the patient, another disconnection. It's always 24-7, you're fat, you're you're not worth it. So they're always fighting with that. And when they're sitting at the table, it only turns up 10 notches. And then the family's feeling upset because things aren't going maybe the way they wanted to. This is part of getting well. And it's wonderful. Way, you know I, I mean, yeah. So it's it's really more about helping them identify what they're feeling inside themselves and toward the family members and why. So that it would be a breakthrough if the patient says to uh, dad, um, I need you to stop asking about my weight. Right. Exactly. Or um, uh, mom, I need to spend more one-on-one time with you. Yes. Yep. Okay. Right. right. Or I'm feeling sad and I, um, uh, you hurt my feelings last week. I was hurt by something you said. Right. So, and, that's, and I restricted after that because I was overwhelmed with what happened. Uh, I felt like you weren't listening to me, uh, but even, patients aren't aware of this in the moment. It they're like tur- like turtles. They need time right. to process. And when you're not eating properly, you need more time to process. Yeah. So as people get better nourished, it's you can get to it a little bit quicker. But remember, they aren't wired in a way that they're lovers of intense emotion anyway. Right. And Mary, if, if for example, I had anorexia nervosa and you were my mom, what kinds of things would you do to support me in my recovery? Say I'm 20% underweight or even just, I don't know, 15% underweight and you're worried about me. What, what do you tell parents the best way to support your child is? Well, I've learned these strategies from my parent peer mentor, Michelle Morales, and a lot of other parents who've been through this. Cool. But the, what the parents, the parents who've been through this will say that you really need to start first with validation uh-huh. um, and joining. And, and motivational interviewing, which we teach parents says the same thing. Like you want to start with empathy and validation. So if we're having the discussion about college, all right? Yeah. um, I think it's important for the parent to start with, I can hear how important stay, you know, stay with the kids' goals and values. Yeah. First, right? I hear how important it is for you to go away for for school. I hear how um, critical it feels for you to feel a sense of autonomy. And that is all very important. At the same time, and notice I didn't say but here. 
Yeah, right. Thought undoes everything I just said. I say, yeah, this is and. And, exactly, and. both and. Use the both yeah. and. And at the same time, I'm worried because I love you and you've been telling me that you're purging three times during the night. So that way, the parent has, has got the both and. You've, you've acknowledged the importance to the child, the adult child, and mm-hmm. you've also let your child in your head about what you're concerned about. So now both realities are out in front of you. So that's kind yeah. of... That's kind of the way we ask parents to talk. We also say, you know, fighting with an eating disorder isn't going to help because eating disorders usually win fights. So argumentation hardly ever gets you where you need to be. But if you if you start out with acknowledging the life goals and values of the patient while also stating your concern and your love and your care, they are able to hear that better. Um, Rolling with resistance is very important. Like I said, sometimes you got to go like this. Yeah, like you're talking on both sides of your mouth almost because yeah. you want acknowledgement. Right. Um, but to go straight for sure when there's a riptide is not a smart thing to do. Oh, that's a great analogy. Swim like this or be a sailboat and come in like so, this. So join them and appreciate the dilemma. Yes, it's like, ex- hey, yes. uh, we have a dilemma here. I understand your need for independence, but at the same time, you know, this has been happening and I'm feeling cautious. Right. And as, and as a group leader, you can do the same thing. Like as a therapist in group, I might say, I'm caught up in a relational dilemma right now. Cool. There's a part of me that wants to push harder on you to talk more today because what you say is so important. Yeah. And, and I don't want you to feel alone. And at the same time, I'm afraid if I do, you're going to feel that I'm being um, imposing. I'm being um, you know, intrusive with you. So now yeah. the patient's got both sides and they can, they can say, well, no, or well, yes. Or, but it's let, letting them in. Yeah. And they can tell you what would be helpful. I think it's lovely. It's very respectful. And, and it's not about power. You're taking no. the power dynamic out of this. It's just Absolutely. all about connecting and empathy and validation and putting the relationship, uh, giving the power to the we Yes, absolutely. I love how you said that. It is. I think I'm quoting you. You well, love it because that's something you said in the book. <laughs> no, that 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 is, and I love what you just said because a lot of times where the points of tension and disconnections come is in power struggles, and the eating disorder loves that, yeah. right? Because it's going to say to the patient, "Oh, you know what? Just get away from them because they're stressing you out. Just don't even bother to eat now or binge and purge or whatever." I try to say to, to folks, the family members. Try to move out of the control or the power over into power with, right? Or cool. from control to care, from control Lovely. to care. When you, yeah. when, you, when you focus on translated from controlling to caring, and it's less defensive on both sides. Oh, I love that. So if parents want to, say, participate in a multifamily therapy group, how do they find such a group? This is a challenge because not uh, multifamily groups are, I think, scarcer than groups than single family therapies. Yes, I mean it's it, it depends on where you live, right? Now there's different. Um, Laura Hill and um, Walter King and Christine Moringa have a different kind of multifamily group. It's a little bit it's it's relational, but it's more neuro neurobiologically based. Another excellent. So they are available. Um, and, the, but, but people live in states, like whole states sometimes that don't have a lot of eating disorders. For, for us, you could get more information um, by contacting either the Healing Connection or the Western New York Comprehensive Care Center for Eating Disorders, uh, the link that I gave you. Um, but there are multifamily programs and Laura Hills is one that you could go for a five-day intensive. We haven't created something like that. Ours is more of an outpatient 
multifamily therapy group, which meets um, weekly and then every other week and then monthly because the families told us that's what they wanted. So it's probably going to be easier for local families or people that don't live too far out to come to that kind of multifamily group. But there's different kinds. In Europe, they have like a five-day bolus and then they have like intermittent injections, like a, a couple days here, a couple days there is booster shot. So right. it depends on the model. So Lauren Hills? Laura Hill. Laura, Laura Hill. Yeah, yeah, where is and, that? And Walter where is King, that a- San Diego oh. is where they is where Walter King and Christine Moringa are. Um, and, and Laura was from Columbus. Um, but they collaborate together. So there's different models of multifamily group. Cool. Um, and they focus a bit more on the refeeding end of it, where I, I would say that we don't ignore refeeding, but we're not coming together to focus on refeeding. It, it's a part of what we do to help with disconnections around refeeding, but that's not our main purpose. Um, it's more, like I said, communication, collaboration, emotional, relational skills to facilitate that. And last question, we're going to have to close, but is there a good website people can go to if they're struggling with a child with anorexia? Well, the National Eating Disorder Association is the main consumer group in the country. You could actually go to NIDA um, and they actually have a web page where you can find providers. They're, oh, cool. a good, they're a good place to start with. And of course, I gave you, I gave, if, you're, if the folks are in Western New York, I gave you our um, comprehensive care center. Oh, this is really helpful. Um, Mary, this has been really, really uh, wonderful information. I mean, you you basically are giving the patient and the family emotional skills and relational skills, which are, that's underlying the eating disorder, as opposed to, you know, just putting a tube down somebody's nose and force feeding them. Well, and and sometimes that's necessary to save Mm -hmm. people's lives and feeding like family-based treatment where it's very structured for kids and and they're trying to look at it for young adults now. I'm not saying that's not important. That is very important. For young adults, that's harder. For adults, that's harder. I'm going to say the name of your book one more time. Um, This is Treatment Manual from Rutledge, Multifamily Therapy Group for Young Adults with Anorexia Nervosa, Reconnecting for Recovery by Dr. Mary Tantillo. Uh, I would recommend anyone uh, interested in treating eating disorders and every every family member that has somebody suffering with eating disorders to pick this book up. I think it's a I think it's innovative, and it's hugely successful. And you know, I've been to many different alcohol and drug rehabs across the country, and they put the families in one room and they put the patients in the other, and they're missing a huge oh, opportunity no. here. But I just, I really, really value your work in this area. You're truly heroic and an advocate extraordinaire, and I really appreciate you, Mary. And I well, want to say thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Trish. I feel the same way about you, P.S. And thank you for thank you be a part of your your show today. Oh, my pleasure. And I think it's going to benefit uh, many, many people across the country and across the world. So Thank thanks. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the hero's journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.